0: Hello and welcome back to the VBPH Sermon Podcast. This is Pastor Adam with you again, and we are very excited to present to you our final top three of the top ten best sermons of the year. We have made our way all the way through our top ten list, and today we are here at number three. This is an incredible testimony of a miracle that God did in the life of one Mr. Walt Heyer. Now, if you didn't hear this one before, uh, this is the testimony of a gentleman who I had seen his story before on some other YouTube channel and was incredibly inspired. So just to be clear, he is not a part of our fellowship, but the story is absolutely incredible. And you must have thought so too, because this testimony made its way to the top three of our most downloaded episodes. Uh, We know that it will be inspiring to anybody who listens to it once again. So we're glad that you're here. If you uh, enjoy hearing these messages, make sure that you're subscribed
1: and we will see you soon. Thanks a lot. When it all started for me, I was about four years old and my grandmother was, um, for whatever reason, enjoyed cross-dressing me. And by the time I was five, uh, she had made me a purple chiffon full-length dress. And so when Grandpa was gone and my parents dropped me off at her house to be babysat, usually a couple of times a month, that was the routine. Grandma would dress me up as a little girl and she just would get excited about me being a little girl. She liked me better as a little girl. She really reinforced that female appearance of mine and with that seed planted in me. And and I must say, I didn't know that something was actually wrong because I had no basis to look at the other side of it. I just knew that, you know, when I was home, that didn't happen. My parents weren't like that. But my grandma told me to keep it a secret. As a little child of four or five years old, you don't know that a secret means there's something probably not quite right. And it went on for a couple of years, probably two and a half years. And then I became so accustomed to cross-dressing and being um, appreciated and Fond over because she kept telling me how good I looked. I never got that when I was a boy from her. It was only when I was a girl. So, you know, I'm sure that I enjoyed getting the affirmation. And so after two years, I decided to take the dress home. But I put it in a, a sack. And because it was a secret, I didn't tell Grandma I was taking the dress. And I didn't tell my parents that I was bringing a dress home. But I brought it home and hid it in the bottom of my dresser drawer. And uh, knowing that when I had the opportunity and the house was clear, then I could put that dress on and and maybe get those same fe- feelings back that grandma w- would make me feel, feeling good about who I was. And there was nothing going wrong in the home. There was I couldn't see anything or there was nothing driving. It's just that the seed had gotten planted and was watered by my grandmother about my identity. And that began this two-sided view of who I was. Because when I was at home, I was just a ruffian little boy with tore up blue jeans and scuffed up tennis shoes. And I was a rough little kid playing in the dirt. But still, inside here, I had that image. I heard those words. I had those, I wanted that same kind of affirmation and feeling from uh, when I was a boy from everybody like I was getting from grandma when I was a little girl, but I wasn't getting that. So I guess then I began that that time period where I took the dress home so I could at least feel the feelings myself that I would get when I put them on. Even though I didn't have grandma speaking to me, I could hear her voice, I think, speaking to me. So it was very powerful. And it's very transformative in terms of how you begin to see who you are. But it's also very confusing so it was funny because I had that dress hidden in the bottom of my dresser drawer we were having dinner one night table was clear mom came out sat across from my dad was sitting across from me. brother was down the road and mom says so what's with the dress that you have in the drawer and boy I started breaking out in a sweat and and I said well um grandma made it for me well you could have set off an atom bomb at that point, you know. And so then this big explanation about what had happened. And then my dad, you could almost see him begin to glow like a Roman candle because he was a part-time police officer, an industrial goods salesman, not exactly a wimpy guy. He was a judo expert and all that stuff. So he was, to say the least, not too excited about what he just heard. So then I began to tell them how long this had gone on. Well, then it just, it blew up. And so from that point on, I wasn't allowed to go to grandma's unless both my mom and my dad were with me and my brother. We'd always went as a unit. So that going over there to be a babysat by her ended. And of course, then grandma felt she was very angry with me because I outed what was supposed to be a secret. And so that secret got out. And then I felt responsible for everything going wrong between my parents, my grandmother, and me. So now you see the dynamic. This is where I felt things were not going right because I could see their reaction to me having this purple dress. Well, the purple dress disappeared and I never saw it again. But here's the thing that was most interesting is that purple dress sort of took on a life of its own as an image within my thinking. So at night, you know, when I was laying in bed, all these things went through my head. What grandma had been doing, grandma's voice, I could hear her talking to me about it, the explosion with my mom and dad and the difficulty it caused between them and the difficulty it was causing between my mom and her mom and my dad and and grandma. So it was a, a, a very wild dynamic that a kid at this time I was might have been seven years old didn't quite understand from that point on then I was uh, sent over to my grandmother's other grandmother my dad's mother's house and they were a very proper wealthier uh, family and very um, I would say more uppity uh, my mom's parents were kind of uh, Texas dirt poor people and so this was a whole different dynamic. But people began to hear stories. The other grandmothers, my uncle and so forth, heard about me in that, that purple chiffon dress. And so then I became unfortunately I became kind of the whispering thing. And and I could feel that discomfort that you can feel when people uh, are around you and they looked at me different. They started to treat me different. And so when you have that dynamic going on, you actually probably take on um, acting out being different. And so with me, uh, that was, I started eating. I I became, uh, I was a skinny kid before this, and then I just blossomed. I I was at one time, ate seven sandwiches. And, you know, it was like I I was trying to fill that pain that I was feeling uh, from everything that happened, but then, my my dad's adopted brother, who was only a teenager, uh, one time at a family uh, thing, decided that I was fair game, and um, he began to take me off behind the garage, and he began to molest me. So this started a another thing that had happened, and so now I've got grandma, the purple dress, and I've got uncle who decided he would molest me. So That became his pattern. Grandma's out of the picture, now I got Uncle Fred. And so I began to push away as much as I could from Fred, but he was like 16 or 17 years old at the time. He came over one day and asked my mom if we could go for a ride. I'd never been in a car with him. And he took me up in the hills and began to try to do some things that I knew were not appropriate and I left the car and ran down the hill ran all the way home when I got home I told my mother about what Fred was doing when he took me up the hill because she had given him permission to take me in the car and take me for a ride and she said oh that didn't happen you you're you're lying she said this really did happen and the thing with grandma really happened and the thing with Fred really happened so now my dad be- decided that it was probably better for him to try to shape me a little bit better. So the discipline got uh, much more aggressive and and uh, he would spank me with a hardwood floor plank. He became much more stern. But I think as I look back on it, I think he was, he didn't know what to do with me. This was way too confusing. I mean, in This is, if you can remember, this is in 1944, 1945, 1947, so we're talking about the mid-40s. So there wasn't any context for, quote, what we know today about transgenders. So he had nothing to work with. I had nothing to work, work with except what was happening. And so he began to discipline me quite heavily, and some of it, Today, if we were to analyze, that would be called abuse because it left welts. And um, I got to the point to where some of the uh, discipline was so um, painful. At first, I would just weep and cry and pain and fall on the floor and scream and all that stuff. But after a while, I decided the only way to defend against what he was doing was to be silent and I took on a persona where no matter how hard he hit me, no matter what he did, I didn't flinch, I didn't move. He probably could have hit me with a sledgehammer and it wouldn't have bothered me. And that was the way that I, I internalized what was going on. Because now for me as a, as a young kid, this is becoming overwhelming because I had no way to know what to do with all this information and, and what was happening to me. And I had no way to know actually what was you know the the term psychology or happening in, in to my mind and my thoughts were not anything I was aware. Of. It was just happening, and that's just kind of who I was. But I began to excel in everything I did then i I wanted to outdo everybody. I wanted to run faster, I wanted to hit harder. I wanted to do everything much more aggressive than everybody. It was my way probably of dealing with that, the deep pain that I was feeling. By the time I was in my teens and going to school, um, I got into theater arts in school, and I became quite good at uh, theater arts. I was in some plays. I won some contests for speaking uh, Hamlet soliloquies and things of that nature that were very interesting to me, but I was also very successful at running track and eventually uh, was good in, as a kicker on the football team. So I had this very split persona, but most of it was up here in my head. It, the female inside me was silent in terms of visibility, but lived mightily in my head. The little boy had grown up to be, uh, you know, working very hard on track and running track and winning medals and stuff in track. I had this going for me, and but I had also really big struggles in school as far as academia. I, was, I, I had this stuff going on in my head all the time, and I wasn't good at school. It wasn't that I wasn't bright. It was that I couldn't concentrate. There was just too much stuff in my head. Everything was confusing. I mean, I actually began to have all these thoughts about who who am I? You know, uh, am am I really a girl? Am I a boy? Um, Why was Fred abusing me? Why was dad hitting me? Why did Grant, you know, these thoughts just kept, they were like, I called it the radio in my head that played this stuff over and over again, and I couldn't turn it off. There was no off switch. My uh, grandfather, my dad's dad, was a, a pastor at one time. Our relationship with church was my mom and dad took my brother and I to church and dropped us off at church, and they went home until church was over, picked us up, and brought us home. That was that was church. You know, I didn't have a relationship with, uh, with God. I had never gone that far with it. And so later on we went we moved and went to another church, and I was baptized, but I was still so um terribly confused by who I was, and so terribly damaged by the events that had happened to me. I couldn't get in a relationship uh with much with anybody, let alone get in a relationship with God. I was not a good reader; I had dyslexia. I had concentration problems. Um, I was a bit of a mess. But the confusion was that of my identity, of who I was. And how would I then tell people about what I was struggling with? That also came into play about how I did in, in school, my grades, my ability to concentrate. I wanted to be able to talk to somebody, but I also knew that with what I was dealing with, trying to talk to somebody about something that I couldn't even explain myself would be very, very problematic. I, I, You know, I didn't know what they were going to ask me. I didn't know really what to tell them. I didn't really want to uh, come out against my uncle because he was, by this time, he was a Marine, a drill instructor in the Marine Corps. He was a really tough guy. My dad was still a police officer. I was going up against you know, the men's men. And so I knew the things I was struggling with would not be received very well because of my experience with my dad wanting to try to shape me, I believed, by heavy discipline. All these things got in the way, whether it's at church. I attended church. Our family was church going by this time. By the time we moved, my parents started going to church. But I wasn't connecting with that. I mean, I, I went, I prayed. I prayed for the Lord to take this stuff away from me, uh, to heal me from it. I I kept praying every year about that, take it away. But what, what I didn't understand was that I needed someone I could talk to to help talk through this, that it wasn't just going to evaporate on its own. It wasn't just going to be taken away by some magical puff of smoke. During this time, I thought, well, this is something that uh, must be so new to God, he didn't even understand it you know, that this is so out of, you know, it came along. And and so this is something that he doesn't understand. So he didn't know what to do with it. So he's just there. But for me, uh, I don't know what to do with you. It's kind of like what he was saying to me is what I felt. So I, I, with that, felt like I was on my own, that I needed to fix this myself. As I grew later in life, you know, I joined a car club. I was into cars. I had some race cars. As I got out of school, I went to work in an automotive shop so I could continue to work on my car. Eventually, I went to a City College and got a certificate for drafting so I could go to work in the aerospace industry I work on the drafting board because that was a neat job and it paid good, and that was a big thing. I did that, and I, over a period of time, um, was so good at my studies, so good at what I did. That's one of the things that was remarkable. Even though I was not good with a book, which I wasn't, if you gave me something to do and taught me how to do it, I could do it very well, oftentimes better than anybody that had ever read the book. So over a period of years, I became an associate design engineer on the Apollo space missions and worked on cryogenic connectors. So I, I knew that the, the marbles were floating, but if you would have given me a book and said, you know, study this and study cryogenics, I never would have been able to do it. I couldn't have read the book. Everything I did was hands-on and, and relational, because I was very relational, and but early on, as I began to work uh, on the Apollo space missions, I was going. I was still going to church, and I met a girl one night at the Sunday night singles group. We began to date, and uh, within two years, we got married. We were doing well. We had a nice little relationship. We had a great marriage. We were going to church. I was, again, still trying to see what Uh, what God could do in healing what I had. And I talked to her about the struggle I was having. And as a family, we were living in Southern California and started going to Forest Home Christian Conference Center regularly. We'd go for couples conferences and family conference. And every time we went someplace, it was really connected to the conference center and trying to connect with my relationship with Christ. I was trying to build that. But I was also still struggling. Uh, the struggles just wouldn't seem to go away. That that seed that grandma planted continued to grow and it continued to live in my head as if it was real, as if it was alive and well on its own, even though it wasn't out here. As I began to deal with this, uh, there were times when I would then go out cross-dressed uh, just to relieve the stress it was my stress reliever. Well, that wasn't enough. So then I I began to use alcohol to help relieve the stress. At all the time, I'm married now with two kids. Uh, I'm going out. Nobody's knowing this. I'd find a place far away from home to do this because I had the funds and ability to do that. And eventually, um, I left the aerospace industry and took a job in the, the automotive industry. And that gave me a, a great deal more latitude because they would send me far away from home. So that gave me, and I had an expense account, so uh, I was free pretty much to stay in hotels, cross-dress, go out, still do my work. I was, I became one of the most successful people in the company that I was working for and got promoted and got promoted. By this time, I was still struggling, still cross-dressing, still married. The shame of what I was doing was too much to talk to anybody about. So. Where where I started this as a child and not talking, lived through it. That secret that my grandma gave me, you know, I kept that secret as far as what was going on. I knew how to keep a secret. I'm sure that seeing that explosion, that when my parents saw what happens when you let a secret out, I wasn't going to let the secret out. I I wasn't going to tell anybody. So it really repressed the the idea of letting it out. I continued to drink more when I was out. I continued to struggle with alcoholism. And yet, at the same time, I was moving up more and more in the ladder of success with the corporation. And by the time uh, my kids were growing up, we're still attending church. I mean, if you looked at one side of my life, it would look absolutely perfect. White picket fence, two cars in a garage, everything's good i'm making good money the kids are healthy everything's good i didn't drink around the house i wasn't a slosh drunk at home i did all that stuff when i was away and i'd get that relief out of the way and then come home and be a different person so i had this total two worlds that i lived in actually three when you think about it because i had the family life i had the purple dress life and then i had A a great career that I was developing and becoming very successful at. There came a time by the time I was 39 years old and I started hearing about transgenders and uh, Christine Jorgensen was kind of the first one in the mid-50s that kind of triggered it but I didn't look much into it and so by the time I'm in the 1980, 1981. It had been going on for 39 years. Well, actually, would have been at that time in me. I would have been struggling for about 36 years from the time my grandmother first dressed, cross-dressed me. That's a long time to keep a secret, to struggle, and to try to deal with it on your own without any psychiatric or psychological help. So I went to a specialist, the number one guy in the world because I had the money to do it. And it was a, a guy who wrote the original international Harry Benjamin standards of care. He was the guy. He was the guru, knew how to diagnose the disorder. He knew what appropriate treatments to take. And he knew who should be doing the surgery if there was to be surgery and the hormone therapy. He knew it. That was He was the guy in San Francisco on Union Street. So I went into him and sat with him in 45 minutes he looked at me and he says you've you've got gender dysphoria and what you need to do is uh undergo gender reassignment surgery take hormones and and just completely change and become a female and i was kind of dumbfounded and so I, i listened to it and i said well can i come back and we talk more about this so the second week I went back and I told him about my childhood. I gave him some of the information about what had happened in my childhood, more in depth about the, the abuse by the uncle. And And he says, oh, and by the way, he says, I have your letter of approval here. You can take to the doctor and have your surgery, two sessions. And I said, well, that seems a bit quick to make that kind of assessment. So. While he was prepared for me, he said, no, you're a candidate, perfect candidate for this. I've been doing this for years. I know what I'm talking about. And I said, okay, that's fine. Keep the letter. Uh, Let me think on it. And I waited two years. And during that two years, the the pressure cooker, maybe from hearing it, maybe from grandma, maybe from the radio playing in my head, maybe from the sexual abuse, I can't began to tell you what it all was but there was a big mix master going on with uh, thrown in with a little alcohol uh, that by the time I was 42 years old I had sat down with my wife and said here's what's been happening uh, we need to divorce and I need to change genders well there was there was the second bomb if mom uh, when mom and dad's explosion this was another one and this was even more devastating because the kids were involved in. And that kind of pain, um, no one should ever have to experience. It's overwhelming.
0: Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three. Premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to World Evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks.
1: The kids found out after the divorce. My uh, wife told the kids what was happening. And at that, from that moment on, my daughter called me up and said some things to me on the phone and didn't speak to me again. And my son uh, told me, he says, you know, he said, I kind of wished you had cancer and died because then at least I could tell my friends what had happened to you. But with what's going on with you, I can't tell anybody about it. So now we've got another secret he has to hold. I went ahead uh, and had the gender reassignment surgery. I had a career still in the automobile industry. I was promptly terminated from the corporation and um, given severance package. And they wouldn't even let me in the building when they found out what I'd done. So I, I didn't even get to go back on property. They cleaned my desk out, handed it to me and said goodbye. You know, I understood that. I didn't like it. And I even begged for them to, to give me a job somewhere in the back room. Uh, you know, this was a $300 million automobile corporation. So there was a lot of places they could have shoved me off and, and still let me survive financially. But I was cut off from that. I was not able to get another job. And within a few months, I was actually homeless and living in a park in Long Beach, California. And, and then by that time, I was pretty much a full-blown alcoholic. I had remembered somebody from the car business that told me, you know, I, I know you've struggled with alcohol. If you ever need help, give me a call and I will take you to a meeting. I gave him a call and he came down, picked me up and took me to his house. And he set the garage up with a couch and a few things and let me stay in the garage because frankly, I was so dirty and so messed up that he didn't want me in the house. But that garage to me looked like, Waldorf Astoria, you know, it was better than anything I'd had in a while. So I started going to meetings and I heard stories about people uh, in AA and they would talk about their higher power. And some of them would actually speak about Christ and not often, but enough that it rang my bell a little bit. I decided to contact somebody that I remembered had been a speaker at Forest Home Christian Conference Center, and so I went to his office, and he pro bono decided to give me counseling. You'd see that my life was a total mess. We began to go through this whole process of of dealing with what was going on, and I became suicidal. So he got very concerned. He says, "Well, you need a a family to surround you. You need a, a family environment. Something." healthier than just being out here, going to meetings. And so he said, let me call a friend of mine. He called a pastor friend of his up in Northern California. He called Roy and he said, Roy, I've I've got a guy here that has gone through this gender reassignment surgery, struggling. Uh, Would you take him in? He said, well, let me have a meeting with the family. And he had two teenage kids and his wife, who was a school teacher. He was a PhD psychologist in cross-cultural psychology, as well as being a pastor, very compassionate guy. The next week, my scheduled appointment to be with Dr. Guernsey, Guernsey said, well, you're approved to go. Uh, Roy's going to take you into his house. And here I was. I was Laura at the time, Laura Jensen. And he took me up to Roy's house, dropped me off. He pulled away from the curb, and I walked up the long dirt driveway to Roy's front door and knocked on the door. and, And that started this relationship with Roy um, that I still have today. I mean, he's, he's still we're still marvelous friends. And staying in that house and living as Laura, uh, he just sort of walked through this process with me. I got a job as Laura working at the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. I went to Bible study with him. Um, I started going to a church with him in, in Pleasanton, California. You know, it's very important to go in there and realize he was accepting Laura as just a person that was in need, that he needed to help. And that family embraced me. The daughter let me have her room and she slept on the couch. I mean, they just really wrapped their arms around me and just loved on me. They didn't say, you shouldn't do this. You're, you know, they didn't throw the Bible at me. They didn't uh, they didn't pray when we prayed, saying, "Well, I sure hope they fix Laura." <laughs> you know, they didn't do any of that. They just sat back and kind of uh, were very curious um, in listening to the story and how this came about. Uh, kind of like I'm speaking today, they wanted to know the history, what happened, and and what I was feeling. And and being a psychologist uh, of sorts, Roy wanted to know how I felt. So he didn't ever want to trample on those feelings. So I, I was still struggling with alcohol. Uh, unbeknownst to Roy, uh, I went down and, and, and became intoxicated at a local uh, biker bar. He then said, OK, well, you, you need to go uh, to some recovery home. So uh, I went into a women's recovery home in, in San Francisco area from the time that he dropped me off for that recovery home for alcoholism, nobody came to see me. Everybody that I had ever known was so disgusted and so disappointed with me, at this point, even Roy, that no one came to see me. And so I felt like, you know, the world was here, and I was over here, and I was never going to connect with that world again. And But I I did exactly what they told me to do in this women's recovery house, you know, going to meetings and and listening. And I heard about the higher power and some every once in a while I heard somebody talk about Jesus. And uh, sometimes that was a little frowned on. It was okay to talk about higher power, but Jesus not necessarily. And so I decided that I wanted to try to reconnect as best I could. And I, I had uh, went to a church in Foster City, and I went in to see the pastor before I ever attended church. I said, are you going to try to fix me? And he says, you know, he said, my job is to love you. It's God's job to change you. And I thought, okay, well, I can deal with that. But I I wasn't sure that God could do anything with me. In fact, I had often said in my own mind, in my own silence and quiet time, that I was living on the scrap heap of life. I didn't feel like I had it made because of what I'd done. I felt that I was part of discarded humanity. So I started this recovery program. I started going to church. They just welcomed me at the church as Laura. There was never any problem with that at all. The pastor of the church was actually a friend of Roy, so... The two of them had built the story, and and Roy actually was guiding me to that church because he felt that Jeff was somebody who could be warm and sensitive to what I was doing. But here is the kicker that, that was so interesting about Jeff and the church is the elders got together and the staff got together, and they decided that the best way that they could learn about me was for me to do what they called a weekly prayer letter. And so I would write down all the difficult things that were going on in my life, the struggles I was having, and I would write them all down, and I would turn them into to Pat, uh, secretary there, and she would type them out, and she would send them out. I, I learned later, too, it was 35 to 45 people that would pray over all of these things that were going on in my life. And if I needed financial help, I'd go to church, there'd be an envelope with 20 bucks in it or whatever. They, They were just there, just kind of loving on me. And... So, there was a period of time when I finally began to reach some level of sobriety and start to feel a little bit more confident about who I was, and so I would attempt to uh, restore Walt and begin to dress as Walt. There was something going on that that made me want to try to reconnect with uh, Walt, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that my past was gone. When you change from one gender to the other, you have no past. That's basically cut off. There's no there's no pictures of Walt. There's no history of Walt. People were out of my life. My daughter had not spoken to me. I had talked to my son a few times, um, and our relationship was okay, but. We weren't close. I, I didn't like him to see me as messed up as I was. So I kept trying to do this, but they were they were short bouts of being Walt and then it they would they would just fail. I went to UC Santa Cruz and started studying psychology, the psychology of addictions, and to try to become a counselor. That was my goal to try to work with people who were struggling because I never had any help. And I wanted to be somebody who was there for the people who otherwise wouldn't have help. So I studied psychology and I excelled uh, very well. Here was the thing where uh, I began to actually start reading the books, which I hadn't done before. And I started I was able to actually understand what I was reading and I was getting straight A's and I started working in clinical environments as, a, you know, how they send you out to do a, a day test at a clinical place, and you work with clients along with a psychologist. So I had these internships that I, I did over a period of time. So for two years, I developed the, the understanding of uh, working with people, but I also began to understand psychology and realized nobody changes gender. It's all, it, the whole thing is a, a myth. It's uh, it's a fantasy. It's delusional. It's a psychological disorder that, and that began to trouble me. And when I realized that uh, by the end of the two-year study, then I forcefully—I mean, I literally had to force myself, knowing that I was a fraud as a female and that I really hadn't changed. It only made it look like I had. I went back and had my driver's license changed back to Walt. And I began dressing as Walt. And I went to City Team Ministries in San Jose and became a counselor in their uh, street uh, program and working with alcoholics and doing uh, group studies and individual studies and working one-on-one with people. I did that for a year. And that was a a contract that ran out at the end of a year. I was devastated that I couldn't continue doing it. I, I wanted so much. I really... I kind of excelled at doing that. Not having anything to do, I resorted to going back to Laura. Now, I cannot tell you why, except I felt like uh, my degree that I'd gotten from uh, college was with Laura and that I could take that somewhere in LA and begin to um, work as Laura, which I did. I went into a lockdown psychiatric unit in a hospital environment in Santa Monica and began to work 12-hour um, shifts with the nursing crew, with people who are dual diagnosed psychiatric patients. Uh, and I began to do counseling with them and write records. And, and it was a very rewarding job. And there was a, a guy I worked with, a clinical, he was actually a psych, psychiatric doctor. And he pulled me aside one day and he says, uh, would it be okay if I sat down and just Worked with you, myself, just you and me, uh, maybe every day for about 30 minutes. And I said, no, i would be fine. So he began having sessions with me, and I didn't understand why. You know, this was kind of puzzling, but I'm one of these people. I don't ask. I'll just do it. So by the end of five or six days, he said, you know, he said, I think you have a dissociative disorder. And I said, really? He said, yeah, but he said, I don't want you to take my word for it. He says, here's a list of people who do nothing but diagnose disorders. That's what they do. They, they, they don't usually carry on with somebody more than just the diagnosis process. So you pick somebody out of there. I don't want to pick them out. And you go to that person. Don't tell them I told you to go. Just call up and say you heard that's what they do and go in there. I don't want any pre-notions for them to have about what I had said or anything. Don't tell them what I said. Just go. And so I had six sessions, five or six sessions with her. And at the end of those sessions that I had every week, she uh, she opened up her book and I'm sitting there as Laura and she said, well, she said, uh, you have a dissociative disorder. And I said, really? I said, what, what does that exactly mean? She said, well, and based on what you've told me, the cross-dressing and then the sexual abuse caused you to dissociate. She said, it's not full blown multiple personalities, but it's a dissociation. You did not want to be who you were because that person who was the little boy was getting sexually abused, was getting cross dressed, and was getting physically abused. Those things alone, she said, built within you uh, basically uh, an, an, another personality. But you're unlike multiple personalities where. You don't know the person. You're fully aware of this one. You just weren't happy with being a boy because he got abused too much and had too many bad things happen. So you became someone who didn't have bad things happening. And she said, furthermore, she said, because you've gone through gender reassignment surgery, she said, I think it's going to be almost impossible for you to recover. And I just wept, just wept. You know, when I went to see the Dr. Walker, he didn't look at me and look for a disorder. He didn't, I told him about my childhood, but it didn't trigger anything in his mind that maybe there was some disorder. He just looked at it as being transgender or gender dysphoria. I decided not to believe her. So I took some of the other names on that list that the doctor gave me, and I began to go to them one after the other. They all came up with the same identical diagnosis. I'm probably more broken than at any other time in my life. And so I started going to a therapist and began to work primarily on this dissociative disorder, but I was still now working very well on my recovery. That had gone well. I hadn't had any relapses. I was doing good. And by this time, uh, I was also connecting back in with the church because I'd moved back up to the Bay Area. I was back in with that church that had received me well. I was working on my fourth step, and anybody that knows anything about AA, the fourth step is the one where you sort of put everything that you felt like was garbage into this can and you start peeling them out. And I went to a a clinical psychologist who was a Christian and began to go through these things one Saturday afternoon. And we went through them one by one, carefully, and praying for them and working over them. And... And it was all the pain and all the hurt, the the sexual abuse, the every event that had caused me pain uh, that I wanted the Lord to help me with, that I didn't know what to do with. And when we were done, we went out of his office. It was all on yellow lined piece of paper. I forget how many pages, but there were numerous pages, and we were checking them off as we go we went outside and he took a match outside and we stood in the parking lot that saturday afternoon he put a match to the corner of that paper and it just started to burn and then we just sit there and the a little breeze took took that paper and burned it it was gone and i thought wow this is really great uh you know symbolism but is it going to work you know what's it going to do i mean i i needed someone to sign off on my four steps so i could move to the next one <laughs> And that was probably more of an interest to me than anything. And so he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, let's go back in and pray about what we've done here. And I said, that sounds good. So we went in and we sat down across from each other and, and we began to pray. And it seemed like it was the longest prayer i was ever in. And it may not have been, but it seemed long. And during that prayer, all of a sudden, I didn't open my eyes, but I could see the Lord Jesus Christ in white, and he was—his feet were up in the air, and he was down in this position with his arms reaching out to me. And I looked—in in, that vision that I had, I looked over, and here was a little baby, and the little baby was me as a boy. And he reached down and picked up the boy and cradled him in his arms and then said, you will be safe with me forever. And from that moment on, my life was redeemed and restored. And I began living as well. And I have been for over 20 years. I'm sober almost 30 years and married 18 years. And the Lord has redeemed and restored my life. I owe it all to people who um, just loved on me and stood by and watched the Lord working in my life and watched how that process works, as ugly as it was and as difficult as it was and as, I'm sure, painful as it was for them to watch at times. The Lord has taken this broken, horribly broken life, restored it to the to the point to where this life now uh, serves to honor and glorify Jesus Christ and Uh, allows my testimony, allows my life to show that being transgender is redeemable and that you don't have to live that way. If someone were to um, tell me that they, you know, had been told they need a sex change operation because they had gender dysphoria, then I would sit down with them and I would want them to look at the research work that says 60 to 70 percent of people who uh, think they're transgender or suffering from uh, what they call comorbid psychological or psychiatric disorders that are never diagnosed and never treated. And if they were, the desire to change genders would go away. The balance of the 20 or 30% that are left are suffering from phobias, uh, some of them sexual, some of them not. Uh, there, There's other issues that need to be dealt with. There isn't one person who needs to undergo gender reassignment surgery to get right with themselves. They do need to get appropriate clinical help, good guidance. One of the problems is there's very few who are really able or willing to help people walk through this because it's a very messy process. It's very difficult. And now the laws work against the people to help them, especially young people. In many states now, it's against the law for a clinical psychologist to try to guide somebody out of gender dysphoria because that suggests that it's treatable. Well, it is treatable. Uh, The problem is they're fearful, I believe, that if they finally do discover that these people have disorders like I did and like 60 to 70% of them, according to the research, these are not my numbers, according to the research are suffering, but never get treated. And if in fact, if in fact, changing genders is so wonderful, and so effective, and people are so happy about doing it, then I would like for that person who's asking me about this to tell me why then do 41% of them attempt suicide? It's because they're not happy. We know they're not getting the help they need, and that's really my message, is to get transgenders the help they need. Don't push them down the trail of hormones and surgery. That's not gonna help them. They're gonna end up with this high, part of this high rate of suicide population, or they're gonna end up discovering 15 years later, you know, that they had a disorder that could have been treated. And I've found from the letters that I get, somewhere between 8 and 12 years is a point of where regret sets in. And that's why my website's so popular. And that's why I don't really get a lot of people uh, writing me nasty notes because many of the transgenders who write me say, you know, keep up the good work. You're right. We found out that we had regret at eight years or 12 years, or like one of them wrote me two weeks ago, 15 years later. I've had him write me about their regret from changing genders to two people as early as three weeks to one of them at 30 years. And he said it took 15 years for him to admit that he made a mistake. This is a terrible thing to suggest that someone began to manipulate body parts when they have The opportunity, if given to them, to have some uh, disorder diagnosed and properly treated by somebody who's authentic and willing to work with them, and it'll take time. This is not easy. You know, one of the things that drives this is that the sex change surgeries, like one in particular, is making $1,200,000 a year doing the surgery. So it wouldn't be financially effective for them to come out and say that it isn't a good idea. I don't make anything from this. I'm not a 5013C. I don't have um, any financial benefits from this. I want to save the lives, as many of those that I can, and I want people to get the treatment and help they need. I want to change the dynamic. I want people to know that God does know what's going on with you. He does know that you're struggling. But we need churches to reach out to these people and not say, we don't want your kind in our church. Those are exactly the kind we want in the church because, you know, through the church, we have the resources. That's not the question. The question is does the church have the desire? Does it have the willingness?